And so tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. You are listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Belinda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. That was President Nixon giving his address to the nation on the Vietnam War, also known as the Silent Majority Speech, on November 3, 1969, 50 years ago this week. To discuss this milestone anniversary, we are joined by Evan Thomas, former Newsweek editor and best-selling author of serious historical biographies, including Being Nixon, A Man Divided. Evan Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Evan, let's start out and give the speech a little bit of background. Can you give our audience a little background on what was happening in the country and overseas in Vietnam when President Nixon gave this speech? Well, the president was, you know, about a year into his first term, and uh, he inherited the Vietnam War. It was going badly. We'd already lost about 30,000 Americans. And it didn't get much better under the first few months of his watch, just because it was a, just an impossible situation. We had a half a million men there. Uh, and so Nixon and his aides were casting about for something that, to do. And they, they rejected the idea of just getting out, uh, that that would be a disaster for South Vietnam, that it would lead to massacres. Also, that it would hurt America around the world, that it would make us seem weak, of, to our allies and to our enemies. And so they wanted to hang in there. The question was how. Secretly, they talked about uh, a, a real escalation of military action. This was favored by Henry Kissinger, the president's national security advisor. He wanted to, uh, to, to hit hard, bombing Hanoi, uh, invading uh, North Vietnam, to really lower the hammer. It was known as Operation Duck Hook. But the military was not really crazy about doing this, worrying that it wouldn't work. Uh, and we had already embarked on a different program that was made public called Vietnamization, where the idea of that was just to turn the war over to the South Vietnamese, to gradually withdraw our troops and have the South Vietnamese handle more of their own uh, fate. Now, the President Nixon listened closely to Kissinger's appeals for force, and he was at least inclined towards doing that, but he backed off on it. Uh, Nixon had a kind of a shrewd fingertips about what was going to work domestically and what was going to work abroad. I think he had some doubts about whether it would work against the North Vietnamese, and at home he could see 
the dissent was really growing, and he was really af- affected by the October moratorium, October 15th, 1969. There was a national uh, uh, pause led by the anti-war movement, but it was in, in many, many cities, including Washington, D.C. On October 15th, hundreds of thousands of people were gathered out, or at least thousands of people were gathered on, on the mall. Nixon could look at their candles. Uh, there was peaceful protest, uh, and they were relieved that it was peaceful, but it signaled that the country was really uh, upset and wanted something else. So Nixon decided against a harsh military buildup, but he still had to do something. And what he did was to disappear to his retreat at Camp David, where he liked to go. And he was alone for a number of days. And this is unusual for a president. He actually wrote his own speech. You know, most presidents have speechwriters do that. Nixon, this is a speech that Nixon himself wrote. He would, uh, his personal aide, Jack Brennan, told me that when he was up there working on a speech, he would wander around Camp David at night looking for empty cabins. And he would find an empty cabin and he'd sit there and scrawl away on that yellow pad. And he spent hours on this speech, which he gave on the night of November 3rd, 9.30 Eastern Time, 70 million people listening. And his most famous, most memorable construction was this idea that there was a silent majority out there. That people watching the news were used to a very noisy minority, but it was a minority. You know, the demonstrators, the the really loud demonstrators, they were a minority. That there was there was still in the country a silent majority that was patriotic, that supported the president, that supported the president's policy, and Nixon appealed to that silent majority. Interestingly, he came up with that that word, the silent majority. You know, again, usually it's speechwriters who come up with these things. This was Nixon himself who was a brilliant, he had good speechwriters. He had some great speechwriters, uh, Bill Sapphire uh, in particular, but others as well, Pat Buchanan, uh, uh, just good, he had terrific speechwriters. But Nixon wrote this speech, and that was a great phrase, and it was in a long tradition of how Nixon understood his own power and really understood the country, this idea that there was there was a silent majority, people who weren't out there being noisy, but just supported their country. And that the speech was enormously successful. Uh, his his approval rating went from 52 to 68 percent. Let's let's imagine 68 percent is a number that president, modern presidents can only dream about. Uh, so it was a it was a very successful speech, at least politically, at least in the short term. From Nixon's perspective, who was, you know, what were the demographics of the silent majority versus what he what he believed was the vocal minority? It was, uh, this is going to sound familiar, uh, on the coast were the elites, and they ran the media, even more so than today, they ran the media, and the banks and the big law firms and the big universities, they were the intellectual class, the the, the the power and the intellectual power and the, the kind of their ability to to project themselves was amplified because they were elites. This is remember this is before the internet, which the internet for whatever else it is is very democratizing. It gives everybody a voice. Back in 1969, the voice of the country really belonged to a pretty small elite, really, in in New York and 
uh, well, Washington, but especially New York, the major networks, there were three of them then, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they were liberal, they were by and large against the war, but Nixon understood there were a lot of other people who weren't being heard from, who were silent or, or quieter, and that's what he was appealing to. He had done, he had had this insight, you know, many times in his, in his long career. He had built his political power on appealing. He used different descriptions of them. He called them the quiet Americans or the forgotten Americans, the people who weren't the powerful. They weren't the elite, they, but, but, but they, were, they were patriotic. Did Nixon, you, you brought up that Nixon had thought about some of this early in his career. How far does it, how far does it go back? I mean, you had mentioned in your book, The His Case, that he, he would make references to the His Case when, uh, when discussing uh, the silent majority. Could you touch upon that a little bit? Sure. I mean, this goes all the way back. Actually, it goes back before the His Case in, in ways that are significant. When he was in college at Whittier College, there was sort of an elite group uh, that had its own society known as the Franklins. And Nixon organized his own society, his own, it's not a fraternity exactly, it's sort of a club called the Orthogonians. It was really made up of people who were on the outs. Uh, not the star quarterback, but the lineman, so to speak, on the football team. And Nixon, although he was not necessarily the most easy person to, to, to pal around with, had great political insight, and he ran for student body president and won by appealing not to the elites, but to everybody else. And, of course, there are more, more others than elites. And So he, this goes all the way back. You mentioned the Hiss case. In the Hiss case, this involved a fellow named Alger Hiss, who was a senior State Department official, who was uh, uh, accused of being communist, uh, being a Soviet spy, Hiss denied it, and the elites believed him. Hiss was uh, head of the Carnegie Institute. He'd gone to Harvard Law School. He was sort of a darling of the, of the East Coast elites, and they believed his denials. And so did most people, or at least most people in Washington. Nixon, however, was pretty sure that Hiss was a Soviet spy, and Nixon was right. Uh, Nixon had then, as a congressman, you know, as a young congressman, exposed Alger Hiss proved that he was working for Moscow, and that was a tremendous blow against the elites. Of course, the elites never forgave him for it, uh, but it, was, it helped launch Nixon's political career. Do you think this, was this speech more, I mean, the title of the speech is the address to the nation uh, on, on the Vietnam War, the situation in the Vietnam War, but did this speech have broader connotation for Nixon than just, than just Vietnam? Yes, I mean, it was Nixon's whole political career uh, was based on this ability to reach past the establishment of the elites and to have a, a more popular or populist background. Now, it's a little complicated because Nixon himself was, you could say, a man of Washington. After all, he'd been a congressman. He'd been a U.S. senator. He'd been vice president of the United States. He'd been in Washington a long time. He understood Washington. He understood Washington power. He understands how to use Washington power. So you could say, well, he's a Washington establishment figure. But he never forgot where he came from, that he had been a poor boy in, in, in growing up in California, in Yorba Linda, um, on a pretty desolate, then desolate place, now a beautiful place where the library is. But back in its day, you look at those photographs, it's pretty bleak. Uh, and he knew, you know, he'd grown up in the Great Depression. And he knew what it was like to be poor 
and to be isolated. And also because he was a shy, and this is part of the mystery of Nixon, he, he was a shy guy. You know, He was not popular at school, but he was a, a shy guy who managed to become student body president in high school and in Actually, he never made it in high school. He was close, but he he did make it in college because he was politically shrewd. He knew how to rally the left behind and the forgotten. And this was just an enormous issue for him all through his career, but particularly in the 60s when the country was so divided. And uh, a lot of the noise was coming from the university campuses, which were then even even more so back in the late 60s were where we're well better off kids and 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 uh, more elite kids went. Uh, that's where the noise was coming from. And Nixon understood, and he again he'd done this all through his career that he could build a majority out of people who in opposition to that group. Now it's complicated because Nixon was accused of being divisive, of dividing the country. Nixon's own view was that he was uniting the country. Uh, and was he, you know, history is going to have to decide. It was a divisive time, that's for sure. Uh, and Nixon did. Now, in, in Nixon's defense, he did have this more universal feel. He understood it, the country was more than just people had gone to Harvard. On the other hand, he sometimes played on passions that were negative. And he did, he did, he could touch nerves that were full of anger. And his critics have faulted him for this, and rightly so. Uh, Nixon was not above uh, playing to fear, and uh, that is, to me, that is a, a powerful criticism of him. It's not; it's you can de- debate it and you can dispute it, but it is a recurring criticism. And like every good politician, he knew how to play to human emotions, and one of them is fear. Why do you think this, uh, the Vietnam War being unpopular as it was during this period? Why do you think this speech resonated so well, and why did his approval ratings, why did he get such a great reception to the American people that they would give him such great approval ratings afterward? The Vietnam War was actually not quite as unpopular as it seemed. Uh, people hung in, you know, people are patriotic, and even even four or five years into the combat war, the war had been kicking along in, in, in small ways. It really became a combat war in the Johnson administration where we, when we started sending U.S. troops to fight offensively in uh, 1964 is when the, the war sort of cranked up. So this is now 1969. And the country's unsure. Uh, on the campuses, people were about to be drafted. And, you know, 18-year-olds were being sent off to fight. They're against it. But a lot of other people are not so sure about that. They, they worry that if we lose, or certainly if we give up, then the United States will appear weak. And this is not so far from World War II. 1969, you know, World War, we, had, we had won World War II in the early 1940s. A lot of the people who were, say, 50 years old had fought in that war and remembered it and were proud of it and did not want to see America lose a war. In a, in a substantive and also somewhat of a political way, how, how does he ultimately marshal the silent majority uh, in, in all terms of policy, both foreign and domestic, what does he do in his administration after the speech that specifically, um, I guess, helps marshal um, their support? Well, he did some, this is both the good Nixon and the bad Nixon. Uh, on the bad Nixon front, or at least from the point of view of the, <laughs> from the establishment, he put uh, his vice president, Spiro Agnew, 
out there to start criticizing the press, to start mocking the press as the nattering nabobs of negativity. This played really well, uh, and people really liked it and were amused by it and liked to see Agnew out there banging away at the press. Uh, it was, however, divisive, and it, it did further divide the country. So I would not say that Agnew's crusade was a, was a net plus for the country. It was effective, but I think it, it made divisions worse. On the more positive side, Nixon was very creative. And uh, on foreign policy, he was, nobody knew about it at the time, but he was getting ready to do something that was really dramatic, and that is to go to China. This is complicated and, 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 and grand sort of geopolitics. Nixon was a, a brilliant geopolitician, kind of world global politician. He understood the forces of power, and he could see that the split between China and Russia, most people thought China and Russia were just one thing, communism. And Nixon, of course, had been a ferocious anti-communist, but Nixon was smart enough to see that actually China and Russia were not one thing. That in fact, they were close to going to war with each other, and that they could be politically played off against each other. And so he had this way of, of pitting one against the other in a way that actually was good for American power. Part of that was, although China was closed to the United States, had been for a quarter of a century, he was getting ready, and this didn't bear fruit for another 18 months or so, getting ready to uh, go to China himself, to open it up, to use Henry Kissinger uh, to precede him, but to take this incredibly dramatic and, and a move that was very good for world peace and good for the United States. So he was already working on that behind the scenes. Uh, domestically, he was uh, coming up with ideas that are now pretty well forgotten. This is People think of Nixon as being conservative. He was, at that very moment, in the fall and the winter of 1969-1970, starting to gear up as an environmental president. Now, again, partly it was political. He could see that the Democrats were making an appeal. The environmental movement was brand new. This is long before global warming, all these things that we are assumed today, this is all all new in the late 60s, the idea that you had to protect the environment. That was a new idea, and the Democrats had embraced it. Edmund Muskie, uh, the senator from Maine, Nixon thought that he might be the Democratic candidate in 1972. So Nixon, who loved to be, to outflank his enemies, to do in-runs on his enemies, he cast himself as a, an environmental reformer and created the Environmental Protection Agency. Kind of amazing when you think of it. The conservative Republican, Richard Nixon, was the guy who created the EPA, the bane of big business now. Uh, but at the, in the time, a very savvy political move and also good for the country. The, the Nixon administration passed the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, uh, 1971 or 72, I guess it was, uh, that were in very important first steps in cleaning up the environment, just crucially important. And so Nixon was a, 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 an inventive, although he's politically inventive, he was also very substantive. Those were very substantive acts. This was all happening that, 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 that fall, winter, and spring of his first and second year in office. You talk a little bit in uh, Being Nixon about this idea of government reorganization, uh, that uh, the idea that um, President Nixon was going to reorganize government in such a way that uh, he felt would... Um, you know, empower um, his governing coalition um, against 
um, his perspective on uh, elites within the bureaucracy. Could yes. you could you could yes. you expand on that a bit? Uh, they had a the terrible word for it. They called it the new federalism. No, nobody knew what the hell that meant. Nixon was brilliant coming up with the idea of the silent majority, but not so brilliant on, on this idea of federalism, because that sounds like more federal power, not less. Actually, his idea, which which was rooted in, in, in political savvy and, and is a, has a lot of appeal today, was he felt that the federal bureaucracy in the 60s, and well, starting in, with Roosevelt with the New Deal, Washington had accumulated too much power in Washington, too much bureaucratic power in Washington. He wanted to redistribute some of that power to the states. That was the new federalism. Let state governments make power more local, local state power, take it away from Washington, give it to the states. But to do that with the help of the White House, it's really in a way it's the White House, which is, of course, the center of Washington, working with state and local government against uh, Congress, if you will, but certainly against the federal agencies. He wanted to put his own people in the federal agencies to make them less regulatory. This has resonance today. One reason why President Trump has remained pretty popular, certainly in the business community, is that he has seen as being anti-regulation, anti-big government. Nixon uh, helped start this movement a long time ago. I don't think he would have gone done it the way President Trump has done it, but he's, that, that basic instinct to take power away from Washington and give it to the states or back to the private sector, that was very Nixonian. Do you feel the silent majority reelected President Nixon against, against uh, George McGovern in 1972? I mean, given, given the fact that uh, McGovern was left of Hubert Humphrey and uh, Lyndon Johnson and, uh, and John F. Kennedy? Absolutely. Uh, the silent, people forget, because Nixon was impeached, it was not impeached, excuse me, but because he resigned before he was impeached. But because of that, people forget, he won in 1972 by the second largest landslide in history. It was barely topped by Johnson's in 64. It was over 60% of the popular vote. Uh, he won every state except for, what, Massachusetts maybe? I can't remember. But he, But it was an overwhelming victory. He did that because he was able to go over the heads of the elites and get the silent majority behind him. I mean, the very people he was appealing to uh, in that speech, in the silent majority speech, voted for him in 1972 in vast numbers. He, he won by a landslide. Why do you think studying this speech is important today? Well, I, you know, it's always important to study history to realize that there's in some ways nothing new uh, a lot of Trump's populism has its roots, and a lot of his anti-Washington fervor has its roots uh, in Nixon administration. Now, I'm, I'm not equating Trump and Nixon. I'm not doing that. Trump, Nixon was probably the best read president except for maybe Teddy Roosevelt ever. He was a, he, although this is funny. Although Nixon pretended to disdain intellectuals, he actually was one himself. <laughs> Uh, this is very Nixonian. He he was he was brilliantly well read, and not, I'm not talking reading reading novels either. He's reading, you know, political philosophy, political science. That's obviously not President Trump's way. Also, uh, Nixon was deeply thoughtful about foreign policy in ways that President Trump was not. So I'm not equating the two. However, there is this similarity: uh, being anti-regulatory, being 
for the forgotten man against the elites that Trump didn't invent that. Richard Nixon did. Well, actually, Richard Nixon didn't either. I mean, these traditions go all the way back to Andrew Jackson, <laughs> the 1830s. Heck, you could take it all the way back to the Whiskey Rebellion. I mean, there's been this streak in American politics for a long time of populism, of resentment of the elites and of politicians who were skillful at appealing to them. Nixon was one of the most successful of that ever, and he won because he was able to marry populism, resentment against the elites, with, this is sounds kind of screwy, but sort of being brilliant about being an elite himself. I mean, he was, he was able to manipulate, uh, and he understood Washington, he got Washington, and he was able to get things done with Congress. He you know, Trump does not work with Congress, and Congress does not work with Trump. But Nixon did work with Congress, and they got a lot done. Our topic is the silent majority speech given by President Nixon 50 years ago Fifty years ago this week. Our guest is Evan Thomas, former Newsweek editor and best-selling author of, among other books, Being Nixon, A Man Divided. Evan Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jonathan. Please check back our future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroides and your Belinda. Belinda.